Welcome to Poppyland Songs, hashtag life on a cliff edge, written and produced by me, your host, Bertie. Poppyland Songs is supported using public funding through Arts Council England. There upon the cliffs you'll find Poppyland, where it all began. Episode 2, The Origin Story. Those who lived and died in Poppyland. Hello again. Welcome back to Poppyland Songs. Hashtag life on a cliff edge. If you haven't listened to episode one and want to know what this is all about, then I might suggest you have a listen back. You can find it on Poppyland Radio website or on my website, bertiebow.com. In brief, I'm a musician and a composer and I am collecting stories, past, present and future from this tiny part of the world known as Poppyland. The stories I gather are the inspiration for a song cycle celebrating life on a cliff edge. I'm actively seeking people to share their story with me at the moment, so if you want to get involved, then please get in touch at poppylandsongs at gmail.com. Last time, I introduced you to my great-great-aunt Kit and her journals, which were written between 1912 and 1914, and they are at the heart of Poppyland Songs. We met John and Alvina Gray, and heard a bit about their lives in the 1800s in North Norfolk. Now, some of you might be wondering where the name Poppyland came from. Well, today, with the help of Peter Stibbons, a local historian, we will talk about the origin story of Poppyland and how it came to be known as such. First, let me introduce you to Peter. It's in great part due to the research he and a small number of others have conducted that we know this story at all. In order to verify it, he has travelled halfway across the world and he's produced a number of books and DVDs all about this subject. Peter is a local boy. He grew up in Cromer. My earliest memory was a a house in uh, Central Road in Cromer. Though in fact I know that when my mother and father first married they lived above the the shop in... um, at the crossways in, in Cromer, it was very small. We were bathed in tin baths in front of the fire with with the kettle being boiled to put the water in and so on. But then most of us who are in our 70s can tell those stories. Peter's family business, going back several generations, was time, horologists. They built and wound clocks, and it was whilst travelling with his grandfather on his rounds that he first heard stories about Poppyland. It was in the late 50s that... He was still winding clocks in the Overstrand area. We'd go with him, set off in the car for the clock round. And there were probably six or eight houses where he still had to wind the clocks. Oh, and of course he had to wind the clock in Cromer Church for, for, for decades. And that's still done in the family by my cousin. When we, when we went to do the clock rounds... Uh, grandfather would point out the fountain, which is still there on uh, Overstrand Road as you leave Cromer. And he would mention certain things within Overstrand that were of historical interest. And uh, so later on, as uh, I developed an interest in keeping track of uh, people's memories and things that happened locally. Uh, the, the whole story of, of Clement Scott became one of interest, so you start to try and track things down. I'm sure many of you already know the highlights of this story. You've probably heard the name Clement Scott. 
And that drinking fountain Peter mentions is the stone sort of trough on the corner of Overstrand Road and Northrop's Road. You can see it as you're heading towards Overstrand from Cromer. We'll hear about how that fountain came to be a bit later in the show. So, the story begins with a train. But to understand, we need to look back a bit further and imagine what North Norfolk would have looked like before the steam engine arrived. If you think how difficult it was to get to North Norfolk until the 1870s, the railway arrived in 1877. Now, before that, you could come by sea, uh, you could come by river, um, but getting through the last bits, it was which by coach or cart or, or, or horse, it really was very difficult. And if you were moving anything in bulk, then water was, was pretty much the only way of doing it. Now, the railways nationally had opened up other areas in the, from the 1840s onwards, but North Norfolk didn't open up with the railways until the 1870s. So it was almost the last unspoiled area of the country where you could go and taste country life, if, if you like, yeah. and make the most of things opening up. However, from what we can gather, this new line, which opened in 1877, was perhaps not that well used and was requiring a positive PR campaign. So, in 1883, the well-known theatre critic and travel journalist Clement Scott took the train up to the North Norfolk coast. I would be pretty certain that Clement Scott, when he came, was actually given a free ticket by the Great Eastern Railway and uh, used that to come up, and part of the job was to write about the area. He was a well-known writer before then. He, he was a well-known theatre critic. He had become well-known because of his writing about the theatre and his reputation. As the story goes, in August 1883, he arrived in Cromer. He notes that the locals had a custom of walking one mile along the cliff in one direction in the morning and a mile in the opposite direction in the evening, but that no-one appeared to venture beyond the lighthouse. He couldn't find anywhere to stay in town, and being a true adventurous Victorian travelling gentleman, he turned right at the clifftop and strode off into the countryside on a voyage of discovery. It was during my rambles around the east coast of England some years ago that I chanced to find such an exceptionally favoured and smiling corner, a village so secluded and at peace, surrounded by fields already ripe for the harvest, within full view of the summer sea that it struck me some description of life in an English farmhouse at harvest time might have a passing interest to many on their rambles, and to many more over the fireside when returned to work again. The experience of a holiday spent amidst the most beautiful scenery of my own country, of walks from village to village, of many meanderings and wanderings on down and cliff, of life at watering places both fashionable and dull, at home and abroad, leads me to the conclusion that many a traveller in search of health and rest might do worse than change the restlessness and excitement of travel for the seclusion and stillness of an English farm in a village by the sea. Eventually, he came across a lonesome, derelict tower standing on the edge of a high cliff, surrounded by higgledy-piggledy gravestones half falling into the sea. A few years before, 
Sarsdram village was concerned that their church would soon fall into the sea, so they moved the main building flint by flint inland, leaving just the tower on the edge of the cliff as a navigational aid for vessels. Coming from his busy London life, he must have found the perfect moment of peaceful serenity, with the cornflower blue sky above, the sparkling sea on one side and flowing golden cornfields on the other, with a profusion of poppies, an image we all know so well. He fell in love with the place and was moved to write a poem called The Garden of Sleep. This poem became quite famous and was later put to music by the English composer Isidore de Lara, which became a hit sensation. Now, the phonograph had only recently been invented in 1877, so was many years of being the mass medium for popular music that it would become. Back in those days, you had to buy the sheet music, learn to play it, and sing the newest hits around the piano at home. On the grass of the cliff, at the edge of the steep, God planted a garden, a garden of sleep. Neath the blue of the skies, in the green of the corn, it is there that the regal red puppies are born. Brief days of desire, Long dreams of delight They are mine when my poppy land Come earth in sight Oh, heart of my heart Where the poppies are born I am waiting for thee In the hush of the corn Oh, heart of my heart Where the poppies are born I am waiting Waiting for thee in the hush of the cold. In my garden of sleep, where the red poppies spread, I wait for the living alone with the dead. For a tower of ruin stands God of the deep, at whose feet are green graves of dear women asleep. Did they love as I loved when I lived by the sea? Did they wait as I wait for the days that may be? Oh, life of my life. By the graves in the grass I am waiting for thee Oh, life of my life On the cliffs by the sea By the graves in the grass I am waiting, I'm waiting for thee On this same day, not far from the tower, he came across a windmill, and standing in the front garden of Mill House was Louis Germy, the daughter of the miller who, thanks to Scott, was soon to be known as the Maid of the Mill.
Could I be allowed a lodging for a few days? Indeed you could, was the answer of the miller's daughter, who opened the hospitable white door of the farmhouse that sunny morning. Scott took up lodgings in Mill House and wrote his glowing essay about this beautiful part of the world that he called Poppyland. Unbeknownst to him, it would change not only his and Louis's lives forever, but also the lives of everyone who lived in Poppyland. Air of rosemary, a paradise tranquil On the day Scott met Louis, the maid of the mill one stroke of his pen, it changed her life. They came from far and wide to try her blackberry pie. Clement's article appeared in the Daily Telegraph on the 30th of August, 1883, titled Poppyland, with the byline by a holiday maker and written at a farmhouse by the sea. People were enamoured with this magical, untouched paradise that he described with charming country cottage lodgings. Whether intentional or not, it was the most perfectly executed stealth advertising campaign that you could imagine. There was no mention of the names of the towns or villages initially. It just beautifully painted a picture of a rural idyll, seducing and beguiling the imaginations of city dwellers in search of Arcadia. In Strands of Norfolk History by Peter Stibbons and David Cleveland, they note that this was to be the first of several articles about East Anglia and North Norfolk in particular. They were so successful at bringing in the crowds that within 10 years, Clement himself would lament over how busy it had become. Once word got out where Poppyland was, people flocked there to experience the prettiest watering place of the East Coast. The people who lived here back then would have been farmers and fishermen, a very local community. We know from John Gray's accounts in Kit's journals that they had been living through some very difficult times. Food scarcity, low wages, cold winters. The local people were struggling. Anybody like that was sort of living a day-to-day -day existence. And if they saw an opportunity of making some money, I think they'd have taken it. They'd have kept quiet about it, but they'd have quite happily said, oh, of course you can come and stay, Mr Scott, and, uh, and made the most of what money they could take in on it. It was at the beginning of the era when other new different types of jobs came along. But you, you had a relatively subservient job uh, working for, for others, and mm. it had been that way for centuries, of course. When this new set of people started to arrive from London in their droves with money to spend, the locals rose to the challenge and the Poppyland industry was born. flourished. Great Eastern Railways adopted the popular name and produced a number of posters to lure more travellers up to the coast. Posters that we all now recognise with images of young beautiful women on the clifftops. There were postcards aplenty, often featuring the derelict tower and quotes from Garden of Sleep. 
a profusion of Poppyland-themed china, a perfume called Poppyland Bouquet, soap, candle holders, miniature replicas of the tower, and polkas and waltzes were composed in its honour. The industry boomed. This small fishing village and rural surroundings were transformed into the most desirable and fashionable of holiday destinations. That was The Poppyland Waltz by Cyril Dare. Thanks to Clement, many sought out lodgings at Mill House, and Louis, who had come to be known as the Maid of the Mill, became quite famous for her blackberry pies, Norfolk hospitality, and intellectual curiosity. In particular, poets and writers were especially drawn to the Mill House, quite likely due to Clement's theatre connections and also the allure of his poems about the area. We can confirm that by quite a number of letters uh, and one or two specifically referring to um, the Mill House. I think there's, well, Wilson Barrett was a well-known theatre manager and uh, actor in London and there's a letter from him to Scott saying, you'll never believe where I've just been to stay. Quite by chance I've ended up hiring the Mill Cottage that you, you wrote about. So we can confirm that that side of the, the story. Her rural life had suddenly been filled with famous artists and literary types, and she, at the centre, was the beloved host.
was The Poppyland Poker, written by C. Roma. You get it? K. Roma? <laughs> Clearly, whoever wrote this didn't want to put their real name to it. I wonder why this was. I might be wrong, but Cyril Dare, who wrote The Poppyland Waltz, also kind of sounds made up too. So why would someone do that? We know there was good money to be made from the publishing industry in those days, so why the cover-up? Was it perhaps a woman writing under a male name? Not uncommon. Or maybe a famous composer, perhaps wanting to cash in on, on the hype, but wanting to keep such frivolous work secret. Have you got an idea why this might be? Let me know. On the cover of the original sheet music for Poppyland Polka, there is a glorious picture of Louis Jeremy, surrounded by poppies. This wonderful slice of history has been retold a few times. Peter, a true historian, was intent on seeking proof of such testimonies. Did this all really happen, or has the retelling over the years muddied the truth? Once we'd moved back up to Cromer, we thought, well, we ought to try and get a bit deeper into all of this. And we wanted to find out where his papers actually were. And that's the point where the internet had come into play. The internet, of course, is a, is a wonderful tool for, for research. And all my early research in the 1970s was completely different styles. So we looked up Clement Scott, lots of references, and it said that the Clement Scott papers were in Rochester Library. Then we thought, well, we ought to go to Rochester and, and go and um, look through the, the papers. And that's the point at which I looked it up again and then realised it was Rochester, New York State, which was a little bit more complicated. So Peter and his wife Brenda, not put off by this, booked a flight to the USA in search of Clement's papers. The question of why the papers were there... Well, according to Peter, back in the 60s, it was quite common practice for American universities to buy up collections of paperwork from famous or known British writers and people in the UK. Bren started at the end of the boxes with the papers and I started at the beginning. We never, unfortunately, quite met in the middle because we ran out, of, uh, ran out of time. But we did find an extraordinary number of things that confirmed local stories, including those letters from um, things like the letters from Beerbung Tree uh, and the one from Wilson Barrett talking about staying at the Mill House. So it was a really big confirmation. So this origin story of Poppyland is all true. And just think, if Clement had found lodgings that first day in Cromer and not walked off into the fields and discovered the tower and Mill House and Louis then Poppyland may never have existed. For me, the real person of interest in this story is Louis Jeremy. There, there is some written about her. In his book Echoes of History, Poppyland, 1883-1914, David Thornton describes her as a true child of the soil and intellectually curious. In Maid of the Mill, Harry Fargen, professor at the Royal Academy of Music, is quoted as describing her as not only being a link to the past and present, but also between soil and the mind. Louis sounded like an incredible woman. She never married, nor had children. There are certainly some raised eyebrows and nudges about her relationship with Scott, but no proof that anything happened there at all besides friendship. 
I would love to know more about her. There is a book called The Maid of the Mill, Louis Jeremy of Poppyland and Her Times, 1864 to 1934 by Gwen Parry. I believe it's a collection of memoirs written about her by people who knew her, but finding a copy is not easy. But wouldn't it be more interesting to hear from her in her own words? Apparently she loved telling stories and regaling people with memories of her years entertaining famous folk at Mill House. Well, this possibility might be in reach. Whilst talking to Peter Stibbons, he gave me some books of poetry written by his great-uncle, Frederick Stibbons. Frederick Stibbons was a self-published poet. He was a farm labourer, a ploughman, and also notably a caddy at Cromer Golf Course. Described as the Norfolk Burns, presumably after the famous Scottish poet Rabbi Burns, although this may well be autobiographical, in one of his books, Through Windows of the Soul, he dedicates it to Louis. To my esteemed friend Louis Jeremy, in whose society I have spent many hours of undiluted happiness, whose house, rich in memories of poets, philosophers, actors and authors, to whom her kindly ministry was an unfailing pleasure and delight, I dedicate this book. So, how did Frederick know Louis? Well, it turns out that Frederick Stibbons, born in 1872, was an admirer of Clement Scott's writings. After Scott's death in 1904, Stibbons had started a movement to perpetuate Scott's memory. He claims to have put his heart and soul into it and was met with some opposition from the Cromer Council. The chairman, ex-MP Henry Broadhurst, according to Frederick in his book Norfolk's Caddy Poet, said, Clement Scott was a theatrical man. We're under no obligation to raise a memorial in a public place to him. Evidently, Broadhurst did not like the theatre, or perhaps those involved with it. Frederick was taken aback by this reaction as he recognised that Scott had made the area famous, and, incidentally, the fortunes of some of the men on the council who were now judging him. But eventually Stibbons won, and Scott got his memorial. When Louis Jeremy heard of Frederick's success, she wrote to him a letter of thanks. He realised who she was and sought her acquaintance, finding her overjoyed and overflowing with gratitude. A splendid raconteur, she entertained me with personal reminiscences of half the celebrities of a past decade, that which ended with the 90s. I revelled in sight of Scott's letters to her. He goes on to list all the great British writers and actors who had spent time at Mill House, many of whom had written plays and poems in her drawing room where the walls were adorned with their signed portraits. These included Watts Dunton, Wilson Barrett, Henry Irving, Beerbon Tree, Lawrence Irving, Olga Nethersole, Nellie Bonza. He goes on to say that Swinburne wrote some immortal verses on the Old Mill Garden. Scott and G.R. Sims wrote of the Old Miller and Louis of the Blackberry Puddings. Stibbons was a regular visitor of Louis, and in 1916, when her father died, he started to write the story of her life. He notes that it was purchased by the Great Eastern Railway Company with the intention to publish. He states that, Having written it at her dictation, I can vouch for its being a very interesting document and will, no doubt, someday, make a stir in the literary world. So, I am now in search of this memoir. 
It seems peculiar that a railway company would have purchased the document to publish, but they did have a magazine. I've reached out to a few places, including the British Railway Museum, and have heard back that there are many documents from the Great Eastern Railway Company being held in a few places, but none that immediately fit this description. But I'll do my best to try and track down Louis' papers. And of course, if there's anyone out there listening to this now who has any knowledge on this, please get in touch. I'm interested whether there would have been any relationship between Louis and Kit. Louis was 20 years her senior and of a different class in society, but they were very close neighbours and especially as Kit had taken such an interest in the history of the parish. We do know that Kit's father, old Sam Hoare, did not approve of Louis. The nature of her business, entertaining the types of men that she was, in particular in later years when apparently the character of her guests had changed and these bright young things became a nuisance. I'm not entirely sure whom to, but I do wonder that like the ex-MP Broadhurst, who was in fact an acquaintance of Sir Sam, they perhaps shared the same low opinions of theatrical types. There are rumours that Louis was perhaps forced out of Millhouse after her father died. Whatever the circumstances were that led up to it, we can be fairly certain that she was devastated to be leaving her family home, where she had been someone important. She had a sale of the contents of the house and was found by a friend in tears, sorting through the house linen. She moved to a cottage on Tower Lane, which was apparently like an old curiosity shop, as she had kept as much as she could from her past life at Mill House. Her small parlour was a gallery of photographs of the celebrities who had been her guests. In 1925, her cottage was struck by lightning and she lost most of her collection of newspaper articles that she'd kept. Very few people remember her now, as an older woman, she was known for pushing an old pram around the village, selling vegetables. When she died of a stroke in 1934, she was carried to her grave in Sidestrand Churchyard by four Overstrand fishermen. But before that, every year on the anniversary of Clement's death, Louis and Frederick would meet at the fountain and fill it with flowers in memory of Clement Scott. These days, we have a name for someone like Clement Scott. He would have been an influencer and running his own uh, Twitter channel and so on and coming up with stories. To... And that's what he did. His influence through written word affected so many people's lives and we feel the echoes of this even today. The power one can wield with words alone is perfectly demonstrated with the origin story of Poppyland. Scott knew the power of language. As a theatre critic, he unusually at the time insisted upon first-night reviews, which alongside his thorough and detailed critiques won him many enemies, but his readers loved it. He also played an important role in encouraging audiences to be more discerning and to pay more attention to the actors on stage rather than having loud conversations and eating their picnics. But in the end, it was words that were to be his downfall. Scott was publicly disgraced in 1897 when comments he'd made about it being impossible for women to remain pure whilst working in the theatre industry were made public. 
Hmm. Well, he did apologise for uttering such words that would cause so much pain to those he knew and respected, but it was too late. He was barred from theatres and was to be gone from the Daily Telegraph shortly after. According to David Thornton in Echoes of History, he died impoverished in 1904. But just before he died, he did receive some forgiveness and a number of people from the theatre industry, including Sir Henry Irving, staged a benefit for him. The final song today is called Tower by the Sea. The lyrics are from one of Clement Scott's poems, all about the tower on the cliff top at Sidestrand. The land is sad without thee, and the hills are draped in mist. The flowers dream about thee, in the fields thy feet have kissed. They have reaped the purple clover that the skylark soared above. But the harvest time is over Of an everlasting love Neath the cliffs the ships are sailing Women watch them joyfully But the winds come wailing, wailing By the tower by the sea The past and present mingle in a sigh of deep regret For at last the twain are single and the sun of love has set Tis rough the way we wended, there are clouds across the sun For the sowing time is ended and the reaping has begun Life and love, how unveiling, in the grass they'll bury me Breathe a prayer when winds are wailing Round a tower by the
We humans love stories. We love a narrative, a beginning, middle and end. It's how we create meaning within our existence. It's how we understand our past, present and future. The elements of Poppyland's origin were just things that happened over time. They had to be gathered together, researched, understood and bestowed with meaning. Fortunately for us, now a number of people have over the years recognised the value in this particular story and done the research. Thanks to people like Frederick Stibbons, his great-nephew Peter, David Cleveland, Elizabeth Jones, David Thornton, Martin Warren at Cromer Museum and John Madden at the BBC. This story was made widely known. But I'm finding that less people have heard of Poppyland now than ever. It's not so much in the language of North Norfolk anymore. Whilst there are pockets of knowledge, interest in the Poppyland story has faded. There are fewer businesses using the Poppyland name than ever. It was dropping out of consciousness. I mean, you will find houses using the name Poppy Land. There were, the last one I remember, there was a tea rooms on the prom at Cromer at the bottom of the gangway called the Poppy Land. I think it was just called Poppy Land Cafe. Uh, and then that went out of use and the name had more or less stopped being used for, for local publicity purposes. But the story is embedded in the very fabric of our town and villages. Although the tower that stood in Clement's beloved Garden of Sleep fell down the cliff back in 1916, my dad has a scrap of paper that he keeps in a glass jar, and it's written by Kit to her brother, Sir Samuel Hoare the Sixth. March 1st, 1916. I quite forgot to tell you that the old tower has gone at last. On the night between Friday the 25th and Saturday, just the tower without much cliff. That must have been quite the sight to see. I wonder if anybody actually saw it fall down the cliff. St Michael's, the church that was moved stone by stone, still stands in Sidestrand. Louis' mill house still remains. You can almost hear the echoes of the feet of our Victorian predecessors walking down the narrow streets in Cromer. I think this story is important, and I feel it should be more known. What do you think? Now, of course, stories that change the world are important and should be told and remembered, but there are stories all around us if you look, if you ask. In war, the winner gets to write the history book, but in social history, perhaps, it should also be the small stories that tell the journey of a community, winners and losers, and everyone in between not just the rich and famous. Besides the making of Poppyland, what other stories were happening at that time? What were the love stories, ghost stories, stories of heroism, tragedy or bereavement? Indeed, what are those stories right now? If you could choose any story that you'd want future residents of Poppyland to hear about in a hundred years, what would it be? Who would it be about? Whoever holds the pen holds the power, and I'm giving you the opportunity to have that power. Tell me your story and I'll set it to music to live on for future generations to hear about those who lived and died in Poppyland. For those who lived and died in Poppyland. 
If you're interested and want to know more, then there are a number of books and DVDs available that go into far more detail, uh, some of which you can get from Chroma Library. Thank you to Peter Stibbons for his help, not only talking to me for this episode, but for all the effort he has put into keeping this story alive and confirming its details. He told me that he was the first generation not to follow in the family business of timekeeping. But with his continued work researching the history of this area, I believe he is also in the business of time. He might not be winding clocks, but... He's winding back time and studying it, so I think that does make him a horologist. Thank you for listening. Thank you to the voice talents of Eddie Anderson reading from Clement Scott's book, Poppyland. Next week will be a sort of part two to this week. We'll be looking into the transformation of Overstrand into the village of millionaires as a direct result of Clement Scott's Poppyland writings, what you might want to describe as the Great British Gatsby. Please share your stories with me. My email is poppylandsongs at gmail.com or you can visit my website, bertiebow.com. Find me on Facebook and Instagram at bertiebow. Please fill in the Poppyland Songs questionnaire available through my website or there should be some copies at the Belfry Centre. Also, if you want to hear any of my songs again, then you can find them at my website. See you next time. Bye. Poppyland Songs was hosted, written, produced and recorded by me. It's a one-woman show. Mm-hmm.